image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. We are approaching the, uh, the wrap-up of our series. There's two weeks left in the series called All Things on this ancient letter, uh, the book of Colossians. A letter Paul wrote to an out-of-the-way church in the city of Colossae in modern-day Turkey, this group of, really a house church, group of believers, in which Paul's expressing his heart for them, which we've seen is really God's heart for us as the church in the world today. Many years ago when I first came to our church, um, I was a, came as a high school pastor, student ministries pastor, much like Tom is now. And I was looking for ways to get involved in the community to meet some people I wouldn't meet necessarily in the church. And I volunteered, ended up volunteering as a football coach at Batavia High School. Did that for 10 years. I was a volunteer defensive line coach. Had a blast doing it. My kids were part of it when they were young. We, um, it was just really a lot of fun for me. And I got to be around a sport that I love and meet people I wouldn't meet in the church. And it was a great experience. And over the course of doing that, I, I had the chance to impact some young men uh, in profound ways. One of them, uh, he was defensive tackle and he grew up in a rough home. His dad was kind of non-existent, not in the picture. He lived with his older brother and his stepmom. And he, when he found out what my day job was, he was, um, well, he was surprised, I'll put it that way. He didn't know what to make of that. He had no spiritual or religious upbringing at all. And so one time he asked me after practice, he's like, so, uh, so coach, um, are you like a priest? I said, well, not, not exactly, no. He's like, so like, what, what, what church do you, uh, uh, a church at? Like he had no vocabulary for it, he didn't know what to call it, you know. And so I told him, and he, and he ended up coming. He showed up a couple of times, came to our youth group, got involved in the church, and really came to know who Jesus was and how much he loved him. And it was a remarkable story. But he told me one time, he goes, I don't know how to talk to my older brother about this. I don't know what to say. He, he asked me why I go, and I don't know, but I just want to go. Like, he's like, I don't have language for it. And I, have you ever ex had that experience? Have you ever had a hard time explaining what church is and why you go to somebody who has no framework or no background? Like, what is it? What is church? Why do you come here? What are we doing? What is this? Right? I don't know. Let's go home. No, just kidding. Right? Like, what, are we, what is it really? Maybe you say, well, we get together and we sing songs and there's words on a screen. And your friend's like, oh, it's like a karaoke bar then. <laughs> well, not exactly. The ball doesn't bounce. There's no alcohol involved. And we sing better upstairs than they do out here, right? Or maybe you say, well, no, no, because there's a message that applies to my life and it's relevant and it helps me. Oh, it's like a TED Talk then. Well, not exactly, no, because we're not just about what goes on up on the stage. We encourage each other. We come around each other and help us grow and get better and stronger in, in our life. And, oh, it's like Orange Theory then. <laughs> no, not exactly. Like, what is the metaphor? How do we explain what this thing called the church is? Is it just a, a show you go to once a month? What is it? One of the best ways we could answer that question is to go back to what the earliest Christians believed about it. Like what, in the first century, when the Colossians got together, or the Ephesians or Corinthians, when the first Christians, what did they think they were up to when they gathered together as the church? How did they understand church? And one of the most common and profound metaphors the New Testament gives us for what church is, is a family. The church is the family of God. That's 
what it is, what we are. It's not the programs. It's not the preaching. It's not the music. It's not the bricks and mortar or steel. It's not the stuff that goes on, that, although that's all part of it, but it's not the essence of it. The essence of it is a family. And maybe when we hear the word family, you think this idea is inspiring because we idealize family, don't we? Especially this time of year. We love the shows and the family around the table, you know, and everybody. They're not perfect, but it all wraps up in 30 minutes or an hour, depending on how long the show is, and everything's nice and they love each other, and, you know, like, the, like we idealize it. Or maybe you're more like the idea of a family is intimidating to you because you're like, I don't know. My family is kind of a wreck, and I, if that's what the church is, I don't know if I'm going to be part of that. I know some of your families. Some of your families are a hot mess, let's be honest. Right? Mine too, right? We've got issues. We've got dysfunction and brokenness and problems. And like, if that's the church, I'm not sure I want in for that. Nevertheless, the New Testament says, yeah, that's right. All of your brokenness and dysfunction and issues and messiness, still, you are brought together, redeemed by the grace of Jesus, called brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. It's family. These are your family members. Did you know that? Look down, the ro- look down the road for a minute. This is always fun for me. Awkward for you, but fun for me. <laughs> no, really, really. Actually, look down the road for a minute. Look at, look at people. I know you. We are conditioned to come and stare straight ahead. The pastor says, go home, right? These are, these are your weird uncles. That's your crazy aunt down the road. That's your cousin who no one wants to talk about, right? This is your family. Seriously, this is, we are the family of God. It's not a weird thing to say, good morning, brother. Good morning, sister. In fact, we could go farther than this. We could say the church is not just a family, it's a family of families for the blessing of all people and all families in the world. This is God's plan. And you think, whoa, when I got married, it's hard enough to get two families together. I don't need a family of families for all the families. That's really crazy. But this has been God's plan all along. When God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, Abram, to, to, become, to follow him, It's not just for Abraham's blessing and not just for his immediate family's blessing. It's for his descendants who will become Israel. And through Israel, God will bring the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world. To do what? To reconcile all people to himself, to create one family. It's always been God's plan. It's always been his heart. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, You who are foreigners and aliens are now, together with the saints, part of the household or the family of God. The Greek word for household and family is the word oikos. You ever buy oikos yogurt? Same word. I don't know if the yogurt people knew what they were doing, but that's what the word means. Household or family. That's been God's plan. So the church, the local expression, Chapel Street Church, the church anywhere in the world where you find it, where Christ is the center, is a local expression of the global family of God. That's what we're supposed to be. A family of families for the blessing of all people and families in the world. So Paul is writing to these Colossians, these, this small group of people, their expression of the family of God in that, con- in that city, as Chapel Street is in this community. And he's writing to them God's heart for them and for us. He's prayed for them to show them how important prayer is. He's pointed them to the preeminence of Jesus to show that all things hold together in him. He's reminded them of their identity and their story in the gospel. He's shown them how to grow in their faith by putting off the old self and putting on the new. That was last week. These are all the sermons from the series, by the way. If you missed them, you can go watch them online or get them on the church app. I encourage you to do that if you missed them. 
And now Paul is going to show us how we live in the family of God. What does it look like then to actually live inside of the family of God as a family within a family? If you have your Bible open to Colossians 3, we're going to review a little bit from last week uh, and, and then move on. Verses 14 through 17 here. Paul's been saying, put off the old self and put on the new. And then he says in verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, we pointed this out before, but you hear the word you in the Colossians and you think me, me, myself, and I. It applies to you individually, but it's primarily not you individually, it's you all or y'all, right? Paul is writing to y'all. He's saying, let the peace of Christ rule not just in your heart, inner peace, but in you, in, amongst you, in you all. In us, in other words. Okay, now, we have to talk about this because the first century church, this is not theoretical stuff. This was a real challenge as it is for us. Do you know that the first converts to Christianity were Jews? Jewish people who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah? And in the Jews of the first century, there were really four groups, probably more, but four major groups uh, about how to deal with the big problem of the day. You know what the big problem of the day was for first century Jews? Rome. Roman rule. How do you deal with Rome? What's the right approach to deal with Rome? They're the occupying force in our, in, our, in our country. Well, there was a group called the Zealots, and they were like hashtag resist movement. Seriously, they thought the way to deal with Rome is resistance, armed resistance. Let's pick a fight with Rome and let Yahweh finish it. That was essentially the Zealots' view. Then there was the Essenes, something John the Baptist was an Essene. They were also resistant, but they were the different kind to withdraw. The way you deal with Rome is you withdraw from the city, you go out to the desert, you live as a secluded, separated community to keep pure. Then there were the, uh, the Sadducees. Maybe you've heard about them in the New Testament. The Sadducees were, um, they were compromisers. Look, Rome is here, nothing we can do about it. Let's make the most of it. Let's, let's, you know, Rome's not all bad. Let's, let's compromise where we can and leverage that power and use it for our good. And then there was the Pharisees. Have you heard of them? The Pharisees were like, the way you deal with this is that you stay morally pure by obeying the law. Rome can have political rule. We have spiritual religious rule. And these four groups didn't like each other, didn't get along, thought the other group was wrong. Now imagine you're in the first board meeting of the Church of Colossae, and you look down the row and you think, she's here? I mean, I see what she posts on Facebook. She is so pro-Rome. I can't even believe it. He's here? That guy's hashtag resist. I can't believe he is in here. I can't be in church with him. Of course, this would never apply to the 21st century. It's really just a first century issue. <laughs> so when Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule, it's not theoretical. It's real. It's real. Because you're a family. And so these divisions, the gospel doesn't eliminate all of our differences. You can have your opinions and your views and your differences but it destroys our divisions. That's what it's supposed to do. Now, I want you to see verse 17 again, because this verse informs everything Paul's going to say next about your specific individual family and how to live there. Verse 17, 
And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whether you speak it, think it, or actually do it, all should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus where it matters most in your home, in your family. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The word Lord is the Greek word kyrios. It's the same word applied to Caesar. It means king or ruler. So Paul's saying literally, actually there is a king, but it's not Caesar. It's Jesus, King Jesus. Do everything in the name of Jesus as your king. What would it look like to have Jesus be king and ruler over all of your life, especially in your house, in your family, where it matters most? Okay, so with that as the backdrop, let's read verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. 18, 318. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do... Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, in the ancient world of the first century, there was something called the uh, household codes. There were these codes of conduct in the Greco-Roman world about how a, a, a good Roman household should be governed, what your roles were and how you should behave. This was common practice. So Paul is clearly playing off of this known household codes. He's acknowledging them, but he's also showing how the gospel subverts them in certain areas. Each of these three relationships, wives and husbands, parents and children, bondservants, slaves, and masters, are about varying degrees of authority, power, and those roles. But how do we reconcile this with Colossians 3.11? Just a few verses earlier, Paul says, in Christ, there is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Gentile. Does it sound like Paul's changing his mind, like he's contradicting himself here? How do we make sense of this? He's not contradicting himself. I'll try to explain so let's, let's, before we go any further, let's talk about the big elephants in the room. I'm guessing for some of you, there's a couple of trigger words in there that you heard. Two S words. One is slavery, and one is submission. Okay? Let's take slavery first. Let's talk about that. A couple things to say about this. Um, regarding slavery. First, and this is really important, when you read about the bond servants and slavery in the New Testament, while not a good thing, it is not referring to race-based chattel slavery of the pre-Civil War American South. That's really important to say. Many of these bond servants would become valued members of the household and oikos, the family, over time. They were part of the larger socioeconomic family network. Two, the Bible is not ever condoning slavery, even though it acknowledged its existence at times. And three, the trajectory of the teaching of Scripture and the influence of the gospel throughout history has been for the eradication of slavery and the liberation of people 
Not the opposite. Christians have been at the forefront of that movement historically, even though it's taken us a while in some cases to get with the program. Slaves and masters or bondservants is not necessarily a one-to-one correlation between bosses and employees, but there is application to socioeconomic roles today. By the way, do you know Paul sent this letter? We're going to read this next week in the last week of the series. Paul sent this letter, which is in our Bible, part of the inspired word of God, with a man named Onesimus. Anybody ever heard of Onesimus? You know who he was? Runaway slave. Paul sends his letter with this guy back to his master named Philemon. That's the letter of Philemon. To be reconciled to him. Now as brothers in Christ. We'll get to that next week. Okay, now for the other S word. Submission. Okay, can I, let me just acknowledge right off the bat that this word has been used and abused horribly uh, throughout church history. It's been used as a spiritual club at times to keep people, women, down or in their place. I once did a premarital counseling session with a young couple, and the woman looked at me with clenched teeth and said, don't you dare read that at my wedding. Mm-hmm. And as I heard her story, found out that she grew up in a family where this was abused, used in horrible ways to verbally, emotionally, even physically abuse her mother. It's an abomination. It's not what God has in mind. Paul is not talking about who gets to make all the decisions. Who has the hammer? Who's in control? We, we hear this and we think, okay, I want to buy a blue car. You want to buy a red car? Well, too bad. Blue it is, because the Bible said so, right? That's not what Paul's talking about at all. Submission is not the same thing as obedience. Children are obligated to obey their parents, but women, wives, are called to willingly place themselves under the God leadership of their husbands. The Greek word is hypotasso. It's, it's a, a willing placing under. It's a military term, actually. And Paul says... You do this, why? Not because your husband is always right. He might be an idiot. Not because he's so competent or so wise. Not at all. But as is fitting in the Lord. Remember Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of your king. It's not your husband. It's Jesus. So I'm, I'm fulfilling this role because of him. Now, Paul spells this out in more detail in his letter to the Ephesians. Let me read it to you from the New International Version. Ephesians 5, verse 21. This is maybe the most important thing Paul says here. Uh, And and Colossians is a a shorter version of the same thing. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the umbrella. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Submit to one another, mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Wives to husbands as to the Lord. We all want to look at that word. But what does it tell the husbands to do? Men, husbands, or husbands-to-be, I'm talking to you right now. And only you can answer this question. And you have to answer out loud. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did he do that, guys? Oh, say it loud. That's weak. Say it like men. Died. He died. And it doesn't mean jump in front of a train or take a bullet. It means dying to your need to have your way. Dying to your selfishness. Dying to your rights. To put her first, second only to Christ, above all others. That's a profoundly more difficult death. 
Everyone wants to focus on what the other person's supposed to do. Well, he's not a spiritual leader in my home. Well, she's not very submissive. Yeah, well, get, get, look at yourself. Turn the gaze off of him or her onto yourself and say, am I fulfilling the role God's called me to fulfill? Am I using the, the role God's given me to bless, elevate, and, and help others to flourish? Or am I using it to have my way? So, yeah, submission, it's in there. But guys, you have to die. Who has the harder job, right? It's just, we misunderstand this and misapply this. By the way, it's also important to point out, the Bible nowhere ever says that all women submit to all men. That's patriarchy, and that's not in the scriptures. The Bible runs against that. There's a patriarchal society going on, but it says, wives, willingly place yourself under the leadership of a man who will die to himself for you. It's a beautiful thing. It's just not lived out very well in our culture or practiced or celebrated. And the call to submission and obedience is not grounded in the authority of the other person, husband, parent, boss, but in the lordship of King Jesus. That's the rationale. That's the why behind it. Honestly, we should be far less concerned with the structure of our home than with the posture of our heart when it comes to this. I know couples that would say, well, we're egalitarian. We, we, we're mutual submission. We share everything. Nobody's in charge. And, 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 but yet, when you get to know them, there's always a power play going on. Somebody's always pulling a power play. I know others who say, well, he, he's, he's, I submit to him. But when you get to know them, they're really surrendering to each other. It's beautiful. It's less about like this nailing down the role and about my heart. Paul is saying, by the way, in the first century, to say wives submit is not shocking. That was, that was in all the Roman codes. What's shocking is to say, husbands, lay yourself down. Husbands, sacrifice yourself. Husbands, give up your rights. That was uniquely Christian. Power differentials exist in our world. They're not all bad. Some are. But Jesus wants to transform how we live within them. I remember talking to a, a dad of a student when I was youth pastor. And I got to know this guy. He, this father had, was a seminary grad, and he, he had just decided not to go into ministry. We got to know each other, and he was really smart, and we engaged over theological issues, and he challenged me and encouraged me, and I enjoyed our conversations. He even volunteered and even taught a couple of times in our youth group gatherings. And then I found out as I got to know him that this guy was horribly neglecting and mistreating verbally and emotionally abusing his wife and kids. Well, what good is it to debate theology about the preeminence of Jesus if you're an arrogant jerk in your house. It's of no good. In fact, it runs contrary to the gospel and hurts the witness of Jesus. We should call it out. This is why Paul says there's no such thing as compartmentalized Christianity. This is one of the major challenges for the suburban church. I've been to other parts of the world where those churches, those families of God have different challenges. Persecution, poverty, all kinds of issues. You know what one of ours is, yours and mine? Keep religion in its place. Come to church, that's good. But when I go to work, then I'm at work. No, Paul says. Actually, no. If Jesus is king, then he's king over all of your life, including your house, your marriage, your family, your place of business. This is what he's getting at here, where it matters most. Do everything in the name of Jesus. 
Now, it's also important to point out here, the Bible says the most direct and stern things to those that are in positions of power. That's where it's most focused. This is what set the Christian household codes apart from the Greco-Roman world. Are you a boss? You have employees, anybody? People under your charge of any kind? Are you on the chair of any committees? Are you a parent? Teacher? Has God given you any role where you have authority or influence over someone else? Here's your charge. Use that role, whatever it is, to whatever degree, like King Jesus did. Let me put it simply. Those of us in positions of authority are to function in those roles like King Jesus, in service and sacrificial self-giving. To whatever degree you have authority or power in your life, in your business, in your home, in the world. You use that not to get your way, not to bless yourself, not to extract from others, but to bless others. Like King Jesus did, who the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, all authority in heaven and on earth was his. And he took on the nature of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So lead that way. Use your role that way. Think, how can I use my role as the, as the boss, as the supervisor, as the employer to bless these people? How can I make their life better? How can I give up some of my own rights and way to make the, their experience under my leadership just a thing that blesses them and points them to Jesus? Do you think about that? Not just the bottom line? Not just the agenda. It's a challenge for me as well. This is what biblical leadership looks like. Not having your way. Not demanding your rights, but laying those things down for the good of others. Isn't this what Jesus does? In our culture today, there's so much angst over the abuse of power, and rightfully so. We have lots of examples of it. In the church, too. And some have thought and I think among the younger generation especially, have sort of, I think, proposed that maybe the solution to this problem of power differentials is that nobody should be in leadership. Nobody should be the leader. Well, that's anarchy, and I think history shows us it doesn't work. It's not to say that all leadership positions are bad, but as children of the king, we live differently in them. We see them differently. In one of the greatest movies of all time, Braveheart, Whatever you think of Mel Gibson, William Wallace is awesome. Can we agree? He approaches these Scottish nobles, right? And they're squabbling over who's going to be king uh, of Scotland under Longshank's rule. And he says, there's a difference between us, right? He says, you think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide them with freedom. It's great. It's a great statement. It's biblical. The, the power structures of the world operate on this principle. All of you... For me, we see this every election cycle. You exist to elevate me. But King Jesus is totally the opposite. My life for all of you. My life for you. So has God given you any role of authority or power in your life, of whatever kind, in your home, in your business, in the community? Use it like King Jesus did. And those of us under authority. Anybody under authority here? Every hand should be up. There's a cross on the wall, right? Ultimately, we are under authority. 
are to live like King Jesus did in, under that authority in joyful submission and faithful obedience. Now, again, this is not talking about abusive situations or harmful situations. It's talking about, okay, is your boss a jerk? Maybe he is. Maybe you are. It's difficult to say, right? But you're not actually serving him. You're serving King Jesus. I remember years ago when I worked at a different church, I was given, offered a chance to have a different role. It was kind of a promotion, but I didn't like the way it was being structured. And I thought, you know, I, I would do it differently. And I had different visions for it. And, you know, I thought I knew better because we've all been 25 and think we know best, you know. And, and, I, and I remember talking to a friend of mine who was wiser and older. And, he was, and I was saying, I, I don't know because I don't see this isn't quite the right. I don't think this is ideal. And he said, listen, you're not in charge. Maybe you should just be the kind of teammate, team member you hope to have someday. Well, that's not what I wanted you to say, <laughs> but it's wisdom. Are you under someone's authority? Students, you think your teacher's out to get you? Unfair? Professors? A jerk? Maybe. But be the kind of student that's a joy to teach. You work for somebody? You want a committee where the chairman's, chairperson's misguided, you think? Maybe. But be the kind of chair member or employee that is a joy to lead. Like, seriously, what if Chapel Street Church, if we did nothing else, if we walked out and said, okay, in my role in life, I'm going to be fun for this person to lead. I'm going to be the kind of person where they say, well, I, I don't know what she believes. I'm not sure I agree with it. But uh, boy, she's excellent at what she does, and I love having her on my team. That's what Paul is saying. Whatever you do, in word or deed, you're not doing it for the boss. You're not doing it for the professor. You're not doing it for the chairman or chairperson. You're doing it for King Jesus. In word or deed, do it all in his name. Everything. No compartmentalization. We're all under authority. We've all been given roles of influence. You have an entry-level job and you think your boss is foolish. Are you an executive and you think, look, the CEO is just old and needs to go? Well, be the kind of executive that it's a joy to lead even in the last run of his or her leadership. Why? Not because that person deserves it. Not because that person has earned it or because they're so smart, but because you are a son or a daughter of the king. And every inch of your life and my life has been claimed by King Jesus. This is why Paul reiterates it in verse 23. Whatever you do, right? Do work hardly as for the Lord, not for men. I have a good friend who has three colon two three written on the inside cover of his Bible and his journal. He even has a tattooed right there. <laughs> that verse. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart because you're working for the Lord, your king, not for men. What if we went out into the world? And by the way, friends, this is the best witness program, the best method of showing the gospel to people the church has ever come up with. It is not great preaching. It is not great music. We want to have all those things. It is not great kids programs. It is not great outreach ministries. Those are all good. They have their place. But the best method for showing people who, what God is like is your life, is letting Jesus be king over your life and how you speak and interact in word or deed. 
In fact, there's a great problem when we have all these nice programs, but we go out and we live like jerks in the world. Then people, this is why young people say, well, I, I, I'm done with the church. Because, yeah, yeah, they, they have nice things for themselves, but look at the way they, look at, I'm not saying nobody's perfect. We all fall short, and God's grace covers our, our, our shortcomings. But Paul is saying, okay, we've talked about the preeminence of Jesus. Now let's talk about that where it matters the most in your heart, in your home, in your family. We are a family of families for the blessing of all people and all families in the world. That's what the church is. And by God's grace, that's what he's called us to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being our king, our ruler, and our authority. We thank you that you do not use your authority and power to force us into submission, but you surrender it freely, giving up your very life for our sakes. King Jesus, help us to be like you in the authority and power you give us to lay it down in service and self-sacrificial giving to others. And then when we find ourselves under authority, to be joyfully obedient and loyal and faithful so that we're just fun to lead. Thank you for the way that you love us. We don't deserve that, but we're grateful for it. Lord Jesus, our King, you who had all authority in heaven and on earth and surrendered it and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, we praise you. Jesus, our King. Amen. <laughs>